Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. I am going to talk about a new blog post with a special guest. It is Chris Tridabaugh, the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me, Micah. I had to smile as I listened to you give your intro because I have recently started doing some podcasting myself, and I am yet to come up with such a, a good intro. You you remind me a bit of the um, the news reporters on NPR and how they all have sort of their their same delivery that they give when they introduce themselves and say their name. And so uh, I like it. I had to work on that. Yeah, I, I certainly stumble uh, at the start and the end of recording podcast episodes. And uh, I, I think it's a little bit easier for me just to jump in and say whatever I want to say now and try to do it in a somewhat standardized way. Um, yep. So it has gotten a little bit easier. Well, you've I think this is your first time to join me on the double cut where we talk about blog posts and give it a double cut treatment. And I explain why I thought it was worth writing about and why I think people could find it worthwhile to read it. But you have joined me a few times on the ATC office hours where we've had some longish discussions about uh, turfgrass management and, and the way you're managing the greens at Hazeltine. And the reason why I wanted to ask you on the ATC Double Cut for the particular post that we're going to talk about today is because it was kind of in response to uh, some discussions that we were both a part of at the 2020. 22, uh, you at the GIS, uh, the, the golf industry show, as it was called in 2022, I believe, now the GCSA conference and show. And then we talked about it also at the Masters. And I'll go ahead and bring this up on the screen now, and we'll just jump right into it. Uh, this is a post that is, it, it has the title, Reflections on Growth Rate, Nitrogen, and Top Dressing. And I started off by saying that for a few years now, when I have private discussions about the type of putting green maintenance that involves few or no holes punched in the surface and minimal sand top dressing, I often hear this response. Sure, that type of maintenance might work for one year, but it can't work forever. And this is something that you and I were talking about at the Masters in 2022, Yep. And we talked with John Kaminsky about it. And John told me that, sure, it might work at Hazeltine for one year, but it can't work forever. And then, so I was thinking about that and I realized, you know what? That would have been exactly my reaction. Even, you know, four or five years ago, I would have thought exactly the same thing. That, yeah, maybe you could do it for a month or two months or maybe stretch it through a year, but there's no way that you could repeat this year after year. And then something changed in my mind. And I was, but I, it took me a while to figure out what it was. And after the Masters, I was back in Thailand and I was going through a, a long, slow run in the tropical heat of southern Thailand, running through rubber plantations and past oil palm and, and looking out for chickens and, and uh, wild dogs and all the things that one sees on runs and motorcycles and so on in Southern Thailand. And all of these it thoughts. Sounds like, that sounds like a buggy adventure. Is that, is there a lot of bugs involved in that, a run of that nature? It uh, seems like there would be. Well, I, if you pause 
if you pause, you definitely yeah. will hear um, plenty, I, or you will feel plenty of bugs and and uh, mosquitoes. And yeah. it, it, when I'm on a tropical island and go on some of the trails there and, and really go through the jungle. Yep. If you get to the steep parts where you may have to go up and, and you're climbing more than running, you'll, you will find a lot of mosquitoes gather okay. around you. But I assume so. But anyway, I didn't mean to disrupt your... It's, uh, it's mostly just sweat. Um, when you're running and the temp, you know, let's say the heat index is 90 or 95 yeah. or something uh, Fahrenheit, um, basically I'm running in in rather warm temperatures. So you just can't go too fast because what I've noticed is... As I heat up, my heart rate, I, I think, and people who run and or exercise would know this better than I do, so, so uh, maybe correct me if I get it wrong, but it seems to me that as, as I heat up, my heart rate goes up, and it seems like I'm pumping more blood through my body and sweating a lot to try to cool down, and uh, I just can't push myself too much because my, my heart rate goes up in in this kind of heat more so than it does when i'm running in in cool temperatures sure yeah so that makes sense. so i go slow and it gives me time to think about stuff and i was thinking about like why is everybody responding like this sure it might it, like because we're measuring the clipping volume so you know how much the grass is growing you're measuring the playability we've talked about all this on the office hours podcast we talked about it some also uh in the the series of podcasts that we recorded earlier this year. Um, so I'll put a link to all these up in, in the show notes, in the video description. Um, I'll put a link to your sub stack and to all these previous conversations. But this post, when I, when I posted this, uh, it got a lot of hits. Um, a, a lot of people read this and I think it was interesting to people because I think everybody has these kind of, reactions to this that I'm sure you had this kind of reaction too, didn't you? Like if, if I would have told you in 2014, let's go back nine years. If I would have told you in 2014 that you could go a year or, or an entire growing season, like five, six months without putting sand top dressing on the greens in the season. And you'd still maintain firmness three months into that, four months into that, five months into that, you probably would have said you don't think it would work. I would have been skeptical. There's no doubt about it. And, um, you know, it's, it's always, I suppose it's always hard for, for a person to go back and think about how they, and imagine how they thought of things at a different time, um, in a different time period when they were doing different practices maybe, but, but, you know, I've always been curious about things, but I also know that oftentimes I can think of situations and, and instances, and this would be one of them in which I would have been skeptical of, of that sort of, of somebody saying that that was possible, but it probably would have stuck in my head and I probably would have, you know, it would have been something I would have thought about for a little while and thought it, maybe that is possible. And if it were to be possible, what would that look like? And what would be the benefits of it? So I think you're right. I think I would have been skeptical and I would have said, I, I don't think that's possible because there's all these normal things that we're doing turf management wise that need to be done. Um, but it, 
would have been interesting to me at that time. And I, yeah, it's hard for me to remember when and what, what the trigger was. Well, I've written about it. I mean, I think the trigger for me was when I had a, a member of our green committee comment on the sand um, that was being applied and how he had played a great golf course, great putting greens on a Friday and a Saturday, and then sand was applied on a Sunday or a Monday and he played on Tuesday and it was a very disappointing experience. And so I think that was the trigger for me. And that happened in 20 end of 2016, beginning of 2017. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a great story. Yeah. And it, and I think those are some of the triggers that maybe we as superintendents miss because we are so inclined to get defensive about the things that we're doing to our golf courses because we've justified them in our minds and we've justified them at green committee meetings and in newsletters and to general managers and board members. And we've justified constantly the things that we're doing. And so when somebody maybe is critical of that or says that they, they question it, we are not inclined as turf managers to, to think about it critically. We're more inclined to come to the defense of the things that we have spent, spent so much time and effort, um, talking about and defending and implementing. Wonderful. Yeah. You, you give such uh, insightful commentary. I have to think about it a little bit and think, <laughs> think what to say next. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So this is something that in the blog post, I kind of told my story of, of what, uh, some of the key things that that I knew or that I changed my mind about or that I discovered. And and I think it came to be 10 things. So I'll bring up that blog post and maybe I'll try to blast through this list and tell the story. You tell me if it makes sense or not and, and we'll have a conversation. Okay. And then, uh, then maybe after I've blasted through that entire list, we will uh, discuss it. Um, you didn't, but, before we start the list, I, we had to comment and you didn't, you didn't say anything, but I will like, that's a nice shirt that you're wearing today, Micah. Thank you. Yeah. Everybody check out the video. Um, I am wearing a appropriate shirt, which I try to, if I can, I've, I've got a, uh, Hazeltine, uh, Ryder cup 2016 shirt. So that was one of the, I don't recall which day though that was the shirt, but it was, uh, it was early in the week, I think. Yeah, it, it's a nice one, uh, and I think yeah, it's it's just has a Nike logo. It doesn't have a sponsor yeah. logo on it, yeah. and I, I have a lot of shirts that have sponsors mm -hmm. on them, and I can wear them sometimes, but I can't wear them all the time. But I've certainly I've kept this one because it mm -hmm. it doesn't have sponsor logos on it, so it's it's one that I can can wear anywhere. Well, sponsors are wonderful, and um, I always appreciate what they do for us, but it is nice to send people away with a shirt that doesn't have um, an advertisement on it as well. So, yes. Well, thank you for that shirt. It was uh, good. Hopefully I can come back uh, for another event. I, you know, I, I love the shirts that we had for the women's PGA in, uh, you wear it frequently. I, I, I wear it messages in, or photos from you frequently wearing that shirt. Yes. Yeah, so that was an under armor shirt. I believe it has a Toro logo on it. I have it two does. of these shirts. Mm -hmm. It's an Under Armour shirt, shirt, and it is the most fluorescent yellow green, lime green, that you can imagine. And if I would wear it on camera, the 
I think my skin color and the other colors would be so distorted because of that lime green. It it it's a very special type of shirt. But yeah, right. I, I wear that so my kids can find me. It's good for high vis <laughs> situations. Yeah, yes. it's very very good for high vis. That that was yep. awesome. So um, this is something that w- it was interesting to me at the time, and, and this is something that happened. I think in. I, I made the note in late April or early May of 2022. So this is, I was back from the Masters and I was thinking about talking with John Kaminsky and we were talking about how you were managing the greens and you'd had some conversations with some other people. And, and I know that this had been a conversation that you'd had at the uh, golf industry show earlier in the year. And it, and I was like, okay, so this is how people are responding. And then I'm like, you know what? I totally understand that. Because that's what I was thinking too. So what happened with me? I was just thinking like, what happened with me to make me change my mind? And I was running along and this list came to my mind and I thought that might make a a good blog post. So when I came back from the run, I jotted it down as I do. And I have a lot of uh, ideas for future blog posts. Um, And I find it's useful to write it down when I have the idea, because otherwise it escapes my mind. So this one, I'd written down the list and I could come back uh, 12 or 13 months later and write the blog post. So how did I change my mind from recommending surface area disruption of 15 to 20% of the surface area per year, which is a substantial amount of disruption, and filling those holes with sand or or dis- disrupting the surface by verticutting, scarifying to remove a lot of material and putting down a lot of sand, the amount of sand that would be about double or or uh, triple the amount that I would typically recommend now. So the first thing that came to mind was the growth rate, because if the grass grows more, then it's going to produce more organic material, and you'll have to put more sand to deal with that. And so I remembered the quote from Claude Crockford, who was the famous golf course superintendent for a long time at Royal Melbourne Golf Club, which is renowned for its playing surfaces, the quality of the playing surfaces in Australia. And he famously told Ben Crenshaw that Americans are trying to make grass grow, and in Australia, they are trying to stop it from growing. And I I had heard that quote, and I'd heard it years ago. I was aware of it, but I'd always justified that in America, because of the climate, we often have to grow grass. There are certain places in America that if you don't make the grass grow, you're going to end up with a maple forest, or you're going to end up with a desert, or you're going to end up with something. The grass isn't just going to happen naturally. So I've always justified that we have to have some type of growth rate in America. So that was kind of the, the starting point of this, uh, of these thoughts that went flashing through my mind. You, uh, Chris are familiar with Claude Crockford, aren't you? I am. Yes. So, and I'm also now familiar with Richard Forsyth as well. So (laughs) eventually, yeah, Yeah. that's good. I'm thank, thank you for, uh, introducing yourself to him at the, uh, at the we, Masters tournament. We had a bit of a had to be there moment, I suppose. You know, it's funny to us. It may not be funny to listeners, but um, at the Masters in which you were talking about the conversations you were having with Richard 
about firmness and things on his greens. And I somehow made the assumption that these were previous conversations you had had with Richard through email or other interactions. And, and without knowing that you were talking about actually being in physically in the same room with Richard and having these conversations with them. So I just continued about my week, not knowing that Richard was actually also at the masters until Saturday when Richard sat down behind me and I said to Micah, I said to you, wait a minute, Richard is here. And you said, yes, I've been talking about all week about and speaking with him. Yeah. How did you not know that? So it was, yeah, it was, that was, yeah, that was funny. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, how did I not make myself more clear <laughs> that who I was talking with and what we were talking about? Anyway, if anybody wants to hear um, a is facsimile the word? I, I don't think so. But something very similar to what we talked about at the Masters Tournament. Richard joined me on ATC Office Hours, um, and that is recorded and is available as a video or as a podcast. If you can, catch it as a video because you can see some really cool images that Richard shared. So Richard is the current uh, director of courses at Royal Melbourne. And uh, he shared the pictures of the very interesting organic matter management practices that they do. And he talked a lot about playability, what he's looking for with ball bounce. And he answered my question, uh, which I, I, I think might surprise some people when he answers the question, how often do you put sand on these greens that are world renowned for how firm they are? So anyway, the answer is uh, not very often, maybe once a year, maybe sometimes not even that frequently. So I apologize. I, I sabotaged your, uh, your train of thought. So we were going through the bullet points. No, I think it makes it more interesting for people to listen. If I, if I invite you as a guest and we can hear your voice sometimes, <laughs> because, uh, I, I can, I can do this show, just me talking about what I've written about, and it surprises me. Some people listen, and they listen to the end, and I appreciate that. But I hope we can make a better listening experience or a better viewing experience when I can sometimes have guests on who can also contribute their voice. So I try to hold myself back from just talking about this topic that I, I could talk about it for an hour on my own also. So thank you, Chris. Don't don't apologize for anything. Okay. So, um, so we started off with that or I started off, I had that Claude Crockford idea and I was like, okay, I was aware of this, but you know, maybe, maybe he's right. And of course, if you're, if you stop the grass from growing, then you probably don't need to do so much disruption and maybe you can just go on year after year. Um, so anyway, so, so that was, that was in my mind about that quote. And then what else? Number two, um, as I saw more and more golf courses around the world, I realized that once a dense sward exists, then less growth produces better playing conditions. Say, see Lynx golf, for example. And I have had a chance to work at the open championship a few times. And, um, my first trip overseas was in 1997 to Royal Troon, um, when, uh, Justin Leonard won. So I've, I've seen Lynx courses for 25 years, and this picture was taken by Richard Wolm from the Toro Company uh, during the 2010 Open Championship. And I was seeing these surfaces, 
that obviously were going to be better for the playing conditions if they were growing as slow as possible. So I realized, okay, I'm, I'm very aware of the playability connection between slow growing grass. Once you've got a dense sward, the playability should be better when the grass is growing slower. And then I also started thinking about what happens in the soil, like how much is organic material building up or how much is soil organic matter building up in the soil. And year after year, I get more data. ATC has many soil testing clients. And in Japan, we have clients who have been testing with us, all the samples run at Brookside Labs, testing through ATC since before 2010. And I noticed that there was this consistency and yet I knew they weren't doing as much coring and sand top dressing as I was recommending. I've got a chart on the screen now that shows soil organic matter on putting green since 2009 from one golf course near Osaka, Japan. And on average, that's just hovering right around 1% soil organic matter, which Chris, that I think at uh, Hazeltine, you're also for your soil organic matter down to a four inch depth or 10 centimeters. I think you're also about one or 1.2, something like that. That's my recollection. Yep. That's my recollection as well. And I might, I might uh, take a little bit of your job here in recommending that um, the listeners uh, tune into your double cut podcast with Brian Whitlark um, Mm -hmm. from the USGA, where you talk about defining um, soil organic matter versus total organic matter. Cause that's really interesting to, because I think some people th- there is a lot of confusion, so it, they will, this, that will help uh, people understand when you talk about soil organic matter, exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Soil organic matter versus total organic material. And material, I've been, yes. I, and I've been very inconsistent myself in the, in the terminology that I've used. And then I realized that so much of the ongoing confusion about this in the in the turf grass industry is just because we use the same word to mean different types of tests so i've decided to try to um uh be more clear myself and i've written some blog posts and had some discussions and that one with brian whitlark we talked about terminology for soil tests for 45 minutes so that was good anyway soil organic material is This is not the thatch at all, but this is just the humus that's building up in the soil. It is anything that's less, uh, it's smaller in size than a grain of sand because this sample that's been tested has passed through a sieve that has uh, removed all the particles that are larger than two millimeters in diameter. So this isn't testing the thatch exactly. It's just testing the soil organic matter, but it's showing that it's staying consistent. So there's... There's not this buildup of organic matter happening. So I realized, like, if there was a buildup of organic matter happening, then I would think that maybe we need to core more, but that just isn't happening. So so anyway, I was just aware of that, but this is still before I changed my mind uh, to think that this might work for one year, but it couldn't be continued. Um, this, This was only point number three. I was running in a tropical jungle type of uh, climate. <laughs> and item number four, 
I noticed, and I have noticed many times, that tropical forests can produce a lot of biomass with no fertilizer whatsoever. And this is something that when people say that you need, like to make grass grow, that you would need to put um, a lot of fertilizer or a lot of biostimulants or you need to add carbon or something. And you look at how verdant and just how much biomass there is in tropical forests that don't get biostimulants, they don't get nitrogen, they don't get phosphorus, they don't get potassium, they don't get uh, biochar, they don't get, uh, they don't get soil sprays, they don't get foliar sprays, and it just grows because plants are very efficient at capturing carbon from the atmosphere, capturing water from the soil, and... Uh, and, and making use of nutrients that are in the soil. So I realized that if tropical forests can grow to be so huge, so much biomass, um, maybe I've, and, and they can do that without so many inputs, then it's like, okay, maybe with just like a little bit of nitrogen and, and the other elements that are, are necessary if the soil doesn't have enough, like phosphorus or potassium, um, Maybe, just maybe, the grass can grow with with very low inputs of fertilizer, and maybe that could also lead to less requirement for top dressing and cultivation and so on. Well, it strikes me as interesting, Micah, or maybe not strikes me as interesting, but I, I, I'm sure many people growing fine turf would say, well, wait a minute, that's a forest. That doesn't have any relevance whatsoever to what we're doing on turf and that may be partially true but there are some horticultural principles that are that are that are not that that remain relevant to both situations which i think is what you're saying but you know i suppose a person has to separate what is the same and what is different but the, there's some principles involved in that idea that that are absolutely relevant to turf or any type of horticultural um, yeah i i like to i like to pick and choose some of these examples Mm -hmm. and um one thing that i pick also is that even though the the forests tropical forests have so much biomass um and so many different levels of canopy and and plants growing there. If you look in the soil, um, the the soil organic matter in tropical soils is relatively low. And this is kind of a, a divergence here, but it's an example of something that I pick and choose from tropical soils. Um, because the soil temperatures are so high, the microbes break down. There's high rapid mineralization of soil organic matter. So you tend not to get um, accumulation of soil organic matter in tropical climates because the soils are so warm. And it's actually in the colder places uh, where you get more carbon and soil organic matter stored in the soil Mm -hmm. because the plants produce it but then it doesn't decompose as rapidly. Mm. And that has implications to the things like, we think that Bermuda grass just needs to get ripped up constantly because it's producing so much organic material. But then if you actually look at it, let's go to a tropical forest, uh, 
that is producing way more above ground biomass than Bermuda grass, but there's the soil organic matter is quite low because the mineralization is so rapid. Mm-hmm. So it it also is like to me tied in with the growth rate. And I, I don't I've I've always said that I don't really know what the growth rate uh needs to be. It, it has to be site specific. And that's why I encourage people to measure it. Measure the clipping volume measure the growth ratio, measure the playability, and figure out for your site and for your grass type what the growth rate should be. Um, But what I've realized and come to believe in and evangelize about a little bit is that if if you apply these simple measurements like clipping volume, like OM246, the total organic material in the soil, and if you keep track of how much sand you're applying and keep track of how much nitrogen fertilizer you're applying, pretty soon you you know all of the inputs and you know all of the results. You know how much the above ground growth is from clipping mm-hmm. volume. You know how much the below ground growth is from OM246, the total organic material testing. You know how much it should have changed in the soil from knowing how much sand you put. And you know how much nitrogen you put to encourage that growth. So you... Right. you and then you've measured the playability. So, so you know the conditions that are produced and you know how much the grass is growing. If you start looking at this stuff over time, it, it's an incredible toolbox that you can then adjust in different ways to achieve the desired results. And I think that we can get away from uh, what I was recommending before and saying, okay, this, this isn't going to work if you if you do this year after year. So you need to just like do this blanket approach of every year, do this much coring, this much top dressing. And now I make a very site specific recommendation that's based on how the grass is performing at your site. Well, and then if you think about all that data being collected and you're right over time, I, I think that's probably one of the biggest things I have to, and, and I've heard you say it many, many times, but one of the biggest things that needs to be explained to people who are starting to collect data is this will probably not be valuable to you in your first year. You'll need to do it for a year. You'll need to do it for another year to see the real value. Um, but eventually what happens is you have a chart. And as you said, it's a, a time series and you have a chart that shows what's happening. And to me, when the question is asked, can this last for the long term? Can we continue to do this time year after year, time and time again, and continue to maintain the same playing conditions? The data will tell you if it's possible or not. You know, Is the green speed being maintained at the type of speed we want to have? If the answer is yes, okay, check that off is the firmness being maintained at the type of firmness that we would like to have? If the answer is yes, check that off. If the total organic material is remaining the same or pretty consistent, then the answer is yes and check that off. And all of those things start to add up and they make this not some like pipe dream or something that is not fake or pretend or some wish that we have, but something that is real and 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 a person can find that out by collecting this data, putting it in a chart, looking at it over time, and they'll know, you know, is what I'm doing possible year after year after year? I'm very much of the belief now that the answer to that is yes. Um, And of course, there'll be some minor adjustments in different years. But I think overall, we can maintain a surface that is minimally disrupted for years at a time, providing great playing conditions 
every single day, all year long, without the kind of constant disruption that we've been talking about. I've maybe just gotten to the summary of this this uh, podcast too early, but um, no, you know, that, that that's perfect because now we can talk about fun stuff because that's kind of it. Is as we make these measurements, um, and that's why that's why it was it was uh, a little bit surprising to me that people are were responding to me when I have this kind of conversation. And they say, well, maybe it will just work for one year. But I already know that it can work year after year because I've been working with people like you who have been making these measurements year after year. Mm-hmm. And and so I know that by making the measurements, we can find out if we need to add more fertilizer, we can figure that out from these measurements. If we need to do more sand top dressing, we figure it out from these measurements. If we need to grow more grass, we figure it out from these measurements. So it's not just about doing less. It's also about doing more. And it's just that um, I often have examples of places that find that they're able to do a little bit less and get improved playability when they start making these measurements. But these measurements will also tell you if you need to do more. Right. And and I think that's, that's the exact point. I mean, like you said, you and I often talk about doing less because that's the position we're in. But if a person moved, if, if I went to a different course or somebody else went to a different course and they weren't getting the results they wanted, these data would also show them that you need to do more and then you would do more and you would probably see the results get better and you'd eventually get yourself into a position where then you could do less. Yeah. And the, and the key thing about telling you to do more is not so much a soil test. It's the playability. Cause if you're, Mm-hmm. If your playability is not what you want, then you need to take action to to get it there. So if the surfaces are too soft, I'm going to diagnose that from the playability measurements, not from my total organic material measurements. And it's it's the change over time with the with the OM246, the total organic material. That change over time tells us if the work that we're doing is effective and if it's moving things in the direction that we want to, but that is all guided by the playability that we're trying to achieve. So, mm-hmm. um, you can't just, you can't just measure clipping volume and OM246 and soil nutrients and stuff. And then that's going to like give you playability. You have to measure the playability also. And then you use these, um, the, the clipping volume and the, so that's your above ground growth and your OM246, which is your below ground growth. And you then adjust those, but only in the purpose of trying to get the desired playability. Yep. So where were we? Right. I think we are at number five. We're at number five. I saw fine turf at places such as Tom Cook's lawn. And I put in a link to the video where I um, went around his lawn his lawn had no fertilizer for 15 years. I need to talk with him again because I suppose at this point it's now been uh, no fertilizer for 16 years and he has a very nice bent grass lawn. So I was paying attention to that and to a lot of other people who are doing things that are a little bit outside of the textbook way. And I realized like, you know, I used to recommend uh, like three pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet for a lot of temperate region, uh, bent grass, which is 15 grams of nitrogen per square meter. And as we move on to point number six, and I started realizing that clipping volume was useful, I started making calculations of how much 
nitrogen fertilizer would actually be required to produce a certain amount of clippings. And it turned out to be way less than I thought. So um, if you're applying nitrogen in an efficient way, so if you're applying it in, in low doses in the times of the year when the grass can use it, then you can get very high efficiency of the nitrogen that's applied. And if you do that, the amount of nitrogen required to produce a certain amount of clippings uh, could be a lot less than you think. And so I've got another blog post about that. You can click through and, and check that out. And also, I remembered that I took a trip to Australia in 2011 and was just surprised at how good the surfaces were and how the nitrogen rates were half or a third of what I expected they were. So I started seeing, as I visited more places around the world, Lynx courses in Scotland, the Sandbelt courses in Australia, some of the courses with really nice bent grass greens around Sydney, Australia. And I was like, wow, um, this is interesting that I'm recommending to apply two or three times uh, what what people are actually doing. And yet I was seeing the results right in front of my eyes that the results were quite good doing much less. So I put two and two together and it's like, well, if you put half as much nitrogen as I was recommending, then you're probably going to grow half as much grass. And if you grow half as much grass and that's still enough to recover from ball marks, still enough to produce really good surfaces, then that that's probably half as much sand and half as much disruption as you'd need. So I kept checking the end rates. I kept checking what I was recommending and I kept checking what people were doing. And I came to realize that the amount predicted by the growth potential model, when I would set that maximum monthly amount at three grams of nitrogen per square meter, when the growth potential is one, that was over predicting what was producing good results. And I saw a lot of good greens where the end rate was like 1.5 to 2 grams per square meter, which is, uh, let's just say 0.4 pounds per thousand square feet in good growing conditions, which is like uh, point, uh, a tenth of a pound per thousand square feet per week in, in times of the year with really good growing conditions. So, um, so I started recalibrating the numbers that I thought were normal and kind of lowering what I was recommending. And there's some brand new research by Michael Beckin and Doug Soldat and I put a link to that paper, uh, which I believe is a uh, open access. Um, yeah, it's, it's an open access article in Grassland Research, quantifying golf course nitrogen use efficiency. So I recommend you check that out and definitely check out the corrections. Um, I I hesitated to share this when it was first published last autumn because when I read it, um, I I saw that they had. Um, uh, calculated the GP a little bit wrong. So it was, it was, uh, their table four in particular was matching nitrogen rates that people are actually applying to growth potential for that site, which I thought was awesome, but they calculated growth potential in a non-standard way. So, uh, they made some corrections. So if you check that, you're going to see that they found that for cool season grass, the nitrogen use efficiency matches uh, a 2.3 grams uh, maximum monthly amount that, that matches with growth potential. So anybody who uses growth potential to make some nutrient estimate use 
rates for their site will be able to figure this out. And if not, uh, contact me <laughs> if, if you're interested in this. Anyway, the new research that shows what people are actually doing, basically, uh, the, the new research from Michael Beckin and Doug Soldat that shows what people are actually doing, it's getting numbers that are similar to what I think now, and they're lower by the same magnitude than what I, I thought and recommended about 10 years ago. So all of this should lead to less growth. And then, um, yeah, if we come to point 10, it's evident that with less growth, there is less total organic material produced in the soil, and that would lead to less coring and less sand top dressing being necessary too. So that was my, my blog post sharing what I was thinking about on that run. And now it just makes so much sense to me because we're making these measurements and and it's like, yeah, if we're if we're applying half the amount of nitrogen that I would have thought, we're probably getting half as much growth, and maybe we can just do things that uh, at at lower intensities of growth and lower intensities of disruption than what I once thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, this is a, a bit of a preaching to the choir situation because I, I, you know, I've I've seen it. I've seen it for two years, or I'm sorry, almost three years now. And, um, you know, our surfaces, I, I see no degradation. I see nothing that brings me any sort of fear that this is a wrong, inappropriate direction. I see nothing that leads me to believe that we are even slowly climbing some kind of hill towards um, or or decline or going down some kind of hill towards um lesser conditioning um and and again the data is the important part of that the important factor to that so um but you also hear people you also hear people say that like maybe it could just last for one year right yeah i i, I have heard that but you know i guess increasingly and I, I, I don't know how to quantify this, but increasingly I also talk to people who say we didn't terrify all last year and the greens were great. And I think I'm going to do it again this year. Um, and I, again, I, I can't, I don't have a number of people, but I, but I, I, you just have an interaction. It might be a, an email that you get from someone or a comment on a blog post or something of that nature from, from a person who says, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Or, you know, even oftentimes you get it from people who say, well, I've been doing this for a long time. And, yeah, and exactly. It, it, it worked just fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, Richard at Royal Melbourne is a perfect example. You know, Richard, Richard isn't someone that we have um, talked about this. With. We have now, but it's not, we haven't had an ongoing conversation with him over the years. He has been doing this in large part because that is sort of the history and the, um, the uh, legacy that Claude Crockford left behind and he keeps doing it and it keeps working beautifully. And, um, you know, th that's a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, there's not, yeah, I, I don't want to give the impression that this is something that uh, I've invented or that mm -hmm. it's a new idea because there are a lot of people out there 
um, who have been doing this for 10 years, 20 years, maybe their whole career, or mm-hmm. people who have tried this more recently. And you're right. A lot of people are saying, I've, I've done this for a long time and it works. I guarantee you it works because I've, I've done it. And other people are saying, I tried this 18 months ago or 24 months ago. They've tried it more recently. And then they said the greens have never been better and they're going to mm-hmm. continue it. So mm-hmm. it, there does seem to be an explosion of, of awareness about this. Um, and so that blog post was kind of about my personal story because I, I would have been one of the people who would have said, uh, you're not doing it right if you're not pulling cores and if you're not putting a considerable amount of sand back onto the surface. And so I would have said, if you're going to skip all that for one year, I might've said, yeah, it might work for one year, but it it couldn't be continued. And now, um, I, I don't think that anymore. So I, I just like to share that story of my mental change on that particular topic. It's a good story, and it, it, well, it's a great story. And we talked about that. We talked about this a little bit in the in the opening, um, in the early minutes. And I do think there is a lot of mental energy, um, time, and effort spent into justifying practices on the golf course, maintenance practices for fine turf, and there is a lot of. And when that energy is expended, expended, there's a lot of um, feeling and need towards continuing to do it. Uh, I think you've talked about it as inertia. You know, you create this inertia of, I've written something about it. I have informed a green committee. I've informed a board. I've done the processes. I mean, I, you know, I, I've written about how you know everyone loves to when sand has been applied to a surface and it's dried and they love to spread their hand over the top of the surface and knock the sand down into the canopy. I love that too. I just did some of it this week. We had top dress some infrequently used tea boxes and I did that. And it's, it's so satisfying. Like it just, it's like this Zen kind of thing, you know, like a Zen garden on turf. And, um, and it's, it's very easy, I think, to do something like that and to think, oh, wow, look at how much better that is. Or I can see the sand filling up that canopy and now it's smoother and it's not the ball's not rolling through all those little impressions that are in there. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's easy to, to have that inertia. Then that becomes, well, let's do it again. And then now it's inertia and it's moving forward. And you've told people you're going to do this and they understand it and they expect it and but you know again every all of those little processes do have some kind of negative input, impact on the surface that a golfer will get some sort of um, negative feeling from is is my belief and we can say oh you don't you don't even notice we do it so light we don't even notice but you know then i guess i would ask the question is if it's so light that the golfer doesn't even notice um that do you really need to do it because what, what, um, you know, what benefit are you really creating in that instance? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different ways to maintain a excellent surface Mm -hmm. and you can do that with light and frequent, or you can do that with intensive, uh, infrequent, uh, and every surface has something a little bit different, uh, for what is required. Um, so, 
I just, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to keep track of what we're doing and to try to have the best surfaces possible with, uh, yeah, for, you know, the, the highest average uh, number of days in the year. Right. Or that just, just add, not, not average, just add the days in the year in your season at which you achieve the desired playability. And that allows right. you to compare year after year. This is this is what we accomplished. And it's not so much about hitting organic matter targets in the soil or total organic material targets in the soil or a certain amount of sand top dressing down. It's how many days in the season did we achieve these playability targets? And mm-hmm. that for me is a, it's a business focused or a customer focused approach and it's a sport focused approach. Uh, so whether you're doing golf as a, uh, as a sport or whether you're doing it as a business or whether you're right. doing any, you know, this could be extrapolated to any type of sport or, or, uh, any type of lawn care or, or grass maintenance. Like how many days in the year did this surface achieve the desired conditions? And that's something that, that is pretty simple. And I think it, it's, it's logical. And then you can take the equipment that you have and the resources that you have, and you can try to optimize that in the way that you like to manage too, because some right. people would, would rather err a little bit on the side of, of putting too much sand rather than too little, um, mm-hmm. which I can understand that. Well, and I mean, I, my, my personal experience last year was really the, the first year as, as much as the, the general ideas of what we're talking about today have been put into place here for now three seasons. Last year was sort of the first year in which we, we didn't aerify and we didn't top dress throughout the entire season. So every single day was basically the exact, exact same surface. And as our season wound down and we got towards the fall, every comment that I got from a a golfer was, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe how great the course was every single day this year, every single day. And so you talk about inertia. I mean, that's inertia too. So now you're, you're talking about your, your, your clients, your golfers, whether it be members at a private club like us or paying customers at a, a public facility or resort facility that someone else might be working at, you know, that that's inertia too. So now your golfers are realizing I can come out here on any single day and play and it's going to be wonderful. And they start to enjoy their experience and they start to make commentary like they, our golfers did at the end of last year. And then again, I don't have any fear that that is going to go away because on the other end, I have data that shows me everything we want. All of the things that they like are staying where they like them to be. And then all of the things that I know are important, such as total organic material, such as firmness, such as smoothness, I know that those things are all okay. So let's I'm going to be totally comfortable knowing that what we did last year is repeatable this year and repeatable the year after that, the year after that, the year after that. Um, and I, and then you think about a different kind of inertia and the inertia of your paying customers, your members being so happy to come to the golf course, knowing that every day it's just going to be wonderful. And that is a, a huge thing. We're all looking to satisfy customers I mean, and, we're in the turf grass management business, but we're also in the customer service business. And, and hopefully with all the measurements that you have and with the, 
very um, pleased customers. Hopefully, that also is goodwill for you in when you need to tell them, okay, we've we went a season or we went a season and a half or we went two seasons with just like almost no disruption, but we're now going to have to do this. Here's mm-hmm. why, and it's going to be as limited as limited as possible, but we are going to do disruption. You also have the data to show that that's necessary. Yeah. And a hundred percent. So you and I have talked about this, Micah, as we've looked at the numbers from last year and we think, okay, um, it might be good to do a small hole filled with sand this year during our aerification window, which comes in August. And so I have said to um, membership committees and, and club leadership, I think that the plan is to do something like that in August. And I think many fine turf managers will fear that once you haven't done it, you're going to lose it, use it or lose it. You don't do it and you lose that opportunity to do it again. Cause they say, well, you didn't do it last year. You must be able to get away with it next year. And that very well may be the case, but if you do want to do it and you show them just as you said, the data and the charts, and you say, this is the reason why we want to do something this year it's been my experience that they then they will have faith and they will understand, look, he is trying to do as little as possible. So when he says we need to do something, we're going to have faith that there's a real reason need to, to need to do it. Yeah. I, I really like getting away from calendar schedules of just like, okay, we need to do this every year or, or we need to do this twice every year in these particular windows. Now I understand that it's necessary to plan ahead and schedule around events. And so you, you have these windows, but uh, I, I think the argument can be made to customize it. So I, I consult for a particular club that I'm going to visit in a couple weeks, and they're, they've got an aerification window coming up, and they're going to uh, do a pretty intensive... Uh, uh, for that club, they're going to be doing verticutting, and uh, double aerification at different depths and a uh, significant amount of sand top dressing. And this is after a couple of years of not doing very much. So they're doing it not on a calendar schedule. They're definitely doing it in the time window that they've been allocated and the time window that works for club events. But they're doing it not because it happens to be that particular week in the year, but they're doing it because that's what they need to do based on playability and based on some of the measurements that they've made and this is so they've they've had a few good years of not doing much now they're going to do do some disruption so Mm -hmm. i and and i think the club's going to be happy for that because they're they're like oh the greens have been great now let's uh keep them that way or make them even better so this this work is going to be done to to hopefully make the greens even better so, well, and I think I think any club would enjoy, you know, if you laid it out for them and said, hey, look, we're going to aerify our greens and top dress them in season one out of every two years or one out of every three years. Um, and, and you know, that that and, and then maybe you don't. Um, but if you you say it in those sorts of ways, um, you know, anybody can understand the benefit of that. I, maybe I, I even- think maybe even get a better time window to do it when you can get more rapid recovery instead right. of trying to do it in the seasons when the it's not suitable for the grass to grow, but that's the only time window that you've been allocated. Now, maybe instead of trying to just 
do it on a calendar schedule, perhaps there would be some opportunity in the future to reschedule to get a better timing to where you could actually have fewer disrupted days and, right. and have even more effect. So anyway, I sometimes feel like I'm beating a dead horse about this. And then I go meet with people in the real world because I, I do tend to talk with people like you, Chris, or talk with Richard Forsyth or other people who who contact me from all over the world and they say, here, yeah, we're doing what you're what you're talking about and it works so well. Thank you. And so I'm aware of a lot of that. And then I go to some events and and talk with uh, professors from from universities or talk with other superintendents or hear uh, hear through the grapevine about conversations that you've had or something. And it's like, whoa, it is a little bit of a bubble that I'm in. And Mm -hmm. there are still people out there who who are just saying it, it won't work. So... So the, I guess that's why I keep talking about it and why I continue to make new blog posts about it. And and uh, yeah, so the information's out there. If anybody's interested, Chris and I have talked about it quite a bit in various conversations. And I'll put a lot of links to that in the show notes. And you can always go to AsianTurfGrass.com and read more about this. You know, this it strikes me, and this is totally off subject, but it just strikes me as interesting in the, you know, how amazing technology is in these days that, you know, we sat in Augusta, um, on a, on a couch talking into a microphone, the same microphone I'm, I'm talking into today and did a series of podcasts. Hopefully people have had the chance to listen to it. And here today we're sitting, me in Chaska, uh, you in, um, uh, are you in Southern Thailand right now? Are you, I am in Southern Thailand. Yes. And, um, and you know, this will sound, um, when someone listens to it as a podcast will sound, uh, as good, if not better than it did when we were sitting next to each other on the couch recording those podcasts in, in Augusta. But it's, it's amazing that we live in a world where we can do those sorts of things. And um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty, it's pretty neat. It, it is. And it's pretty neat that this type of information can then get shared all over the world. Mm-hmm. And people from the, people from any country that are interested in this, they can they can listen or they can watch. So these kind of ideas do get spread around and, um, and yeah, they, they end up changing things and, and we can also get negative feedback if stuff doesn't work or I talk too crazy. Um, I can also get feedback about that too. So it's, it's great. I think what I, would it be, would it be accurate it would be accurate, I think, to say that we are both awaiting the first person who says that they've been doing something like this and it is not working. Uh, yeah, good point. I, I, I am still kind of waiting for that, but, uh, yeah, you have to be careful with the growth rate. Um, right. You, you, well, so, there, there's more so than me, one piece to the puzzle. If you could definitely, you could, you could do less disruption and get into trouble if if your growth rate's not under control. Well, I think you offer the per- perfect caveat because I've often heard you say, and you haven't said it today, but maybe I'll say it, and then you can expand on it if you feel you need. Your first recommendation, number one above all else, is you have to have 100% turf cover. That's your number one recommendation. You go anywhere and somebody says, what is wrong here? What do I need to do? One you need to have 100% turf cover. From there, 
you can do anything. You can make all of this happen. And you alluded to that a little bit in one of your points on the that we went over. But but that is the number one thing. So if anybody thinks we are uh, trying to um, express anything other than doing this with 100% turf cover, not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I definitely assess. Um, I, I assess high quality turf by whether there's a hundred percent turf cover. So yeah, that's the first thing I'm looking at. And once you've got that, you can start managing it, but, uh, yeah, it's tough to have 5% bare ground and then try to make that better. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really is. So yeah, well, Chris, we've been recording this for about an hour and I know that people, if they're interested in this, we will probably talk again. You've got a podcast that they can listen to. Uh, and we've got other uh, conversations that you and I have had where we've reviewed some of your total organic material, OM246 results, and talked about the maintenance practices that were used to get there. And so I'll put links to all of those, to your podcast, to our previous conversations, to the Richard Forsyth discussion, uh, the the director of courses at Royal Melbourne um, that we we discussed. I'll put that in the show notes so people can check those out. And anything else you you want to say? I think you've covered it. I think we've we've had a good discussion today and as you said, I'm I'm sure we'll have more of these on this and uh, and other subjects soon. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. I always enjoy talking with you and I will sign off now. Bye-bye, everyone. For ATC from Yantikau, Thailand, I am Michael Woods. Thanks, and bye-bye. Bye.